long is this gonna take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I had a project to 164. Okay. the wrongful conviction of Brennan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. five years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. It occurred to me as I was thinking about our gathering today to think about and hear different voices and perspectives on those iconic last words of the Pledge of Allegiance and justice for all, that what I wanted to talk about was justice for children. Well, it turns out that justice for children is actually one of America's great unfulfilled promises. And it's not for lack of trying. We've had the best of intentions, and yet with more and more research and stronger and better insights, the fact of the matter is that we have continuously failed children in America, and we've been doing it for more than a century. This is a special episode of The Six Hour. There is the judicial system to unpack and the laws that bind the innocent in metaphorical and actual chains. Then there are those who have been bound, who have suffered under the weight of prejudice and marginalisation by communities lacking capacity for thought outside of the narrow-minded collective thinking that churns beneath misplaced religious zealotry, that lurks within social stratification and the inherent snobbery of those higher up the socio-economic tiers. But despite these gross disparities, there are commonalities in the processes that conspire to incarcerate innocent children. There's a blueprint. In today's episode... I immerse myself in the world of 16-year-old Jason Baldwin, who, along with Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly, otherwise known as the West Memphis Three, was convicted and incarcerated for the 1994 killing of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. Jason's lived and survived experience is both harrowing and full of grace, 
which you will hear, and most importantly, you'll feel. Imagine a world where a child can be sentenced to life, or even death, because of a few Metallica t-shirts hanging in their closet, or because a judge allows a man to proclaim himself an expert in the teachings of the occult, because he spent a day or so researching it. Imagine that world. Well, that world existed in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1994. And are we to believe that such practices no longer exist? I think not. They existed in 1994 and they existed in 2006 Manitowoc, where the cases collide in kind. You see, a prototype exists for the incarceration of the indigent, the disenfranchised and the vulnerable. And tragically for Jason and Brendan, their experiences are not too dissimilar. Let's begin with local law enforcement, blinded by tunnel vision and fueled by the pursuit of a conviction over the search for the truth. Investigation be damned when the press is frothing at the courtroom door. A media frenzy where sound bites urge local communities and potential jurors to ignore one of the most sacred principles of the United States justice system, the upholding of the presumption of innocence. In West Memphis and Manitowoc, the notion that the prosecution must prove beyond a reasonable doubt meant nothing to those who would demand it for themselves. Or the chaos of the satanic panic theory that permeated and underpinned Jason and his co-defendant's case. It's worth noting on one of Michael O'Kelly's notes when writing about Brendan, he scribbled Satan devil worship slash Halloween. Remember that blueprint I reference? And in both cases, where children of 16 are sentenced to life without parole and a de facto life sentence, there was no DNA linking them to the crime scene. Nada. Nothing. Throw in an ineffective defence counsel, jailhouse snitches, suspect or the absence of testimony, and there you have a wrongful conviction. And there is always a judge and a court who allow the circus to unfold. Jason Baldwin is so much more than a member of the West Memphis Three. He fights every day for the hopelessly innocent, as the co-founder of Innocence Org proclaimed justice. He is an author and he is a grace-filled man. Jason was stripped of his innocence, of a life not yet lived, of potential not yet realised, just like Brendan. But to me, Jason is the true hero of the West Memphis Three saga. We talk about the lasting and everyday impact of the Alfred plea. A plea he took to save Damien Eccles' life. A plea he took when he wanted to fight for their innocence. We take a step back in time to where life was waiting for Jason. We discuss his life before and after his wrongful incarceration. And we talk of Brendan as another hopelessly innocent waiting for the system to check its bias at the courtroom door. This is the voice of the wrongfully convicted. The conversation continues.
Jason Baldwin is the co-founder and deputy director of Austin nonprofit Proclaim Justice, an organisation that advocates for the wrongfully convicted and, in Jason's own words, fights for the hopelessly innocent. Jason was the executive producer of the 2014 film Devil's Knot, a film about Jason's own lived and survived experience. Jason, at 16 years old, along with Damien Eccles and Jesse Miscalli, collectively known as the West Memphis Three, was prosecuted and convicted of the killing of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis. In the absence of DNA or forensic evidence of any kind, but in the glare and noise of the so-called satanic panic, Jason was sentenced to a life of slavery in the Arkansas adult prison system with no possibility of parole. And he joins me today. Thank you so much for joining me on The Sixth Hour, Jason. You're welcome, Tracy. Thank you for this opportunity. And the way I say Arkansas, every time I look at it, it just doesn't flow out of my mouth. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> I, I may struggle with that. That's funny. <laughs> During, uh, in the sixth grade, I had an operation on my uh, neck and had a, a cyst removed. Yeah. And uh, it, it was right at the time of Halloween. And so I couldn't go trick-or-treating. Uh, I had to stay home because I still had stitches in my neck. And um, and my, I was living with my grandmother at the time when my mom and my brothers were. And so my mom took my brothers trick-or-treating and uh, I stayed home and passed out candy with my grandmother. And then so she's like, oh, we, we can do a real cool, you know, uh, uh, character for you, you know, with, with your uh, stitches. <laughs> and so she she uh, dressed me up as a pirate. And uh, I was I was cutthroat the pirate, and I had a real cutthroat. And uh, and when people came and uh, got their candy, and, and so I would tell them, "I'm cutthroat the pirate from Arkansas." <laughs> <laughs> Your grandmother had it had it sussed, huh? That's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> but but you saying uh, Arkansas maybe just transported me in time back to the that way back in the day. <laughs> it's all good. Let's take a step back in time. It's May the 8th, 1993. It's 48 hours after the discovery of Christopher Byers, Stephen Branch and James Michael Moore. The West Memphis Police Department is knocking on your front door. You're 16 years of age. What are you thinking? Well, at the time, um, the police department was always knocking on my door for whatever reasons. It's ever since I was 11 years old and I got arrested for uh, playing hide-and-go-seek, uh, playing outside and everything. And so from that point on, I had a uh, probation officer. And anytime something happened, something, you know, some, something illegal, anytime something happened in town, the police would always be at my house asking me if I knew anything about it. And I was just a kid and didn't know anything about anything ever, especially any of the horrible things that they came asking me about and so on that day when the police showed up my mom had already tasked me with staying home with my brothers and watching them making sure everybody's accounted for until you know till the police could find the murderer because my youngest brother at the time terry was only nine years old basically the same age as those little boys that came up missing you know that were murdered mm. and so like everyone in town we were you know, fearful and frightened and angry and all the emotions. And so to find the police at my door, 
wasn't alarming to me at the age of 16 because they'd already been knocking on my door since the age of 11 mm. for all types of things I didn't know about, you know? And so the, Damien was over there and Dominique was over, you know, and we're playing Super Nintendo or whatever, you know, just hanging out, you know, watching my little brothers and stuff. And so when the police started questioning, the way they were questioning, you know, was forcing, they, they were questioning Damien, they're forcing him to, you know, just guess. And later on at trial, when Detective Ridge was given testimony about that interview, he made it seem as if Damien gave this information when in fact, the information was in the questions. Like they would ask Damien, do you think it's possible a satanic cult did this? You know, and Damien would be like, I don't know. And they're like, well, just guess. Use your imagination. And so, of course, you know, they're forcing him to guess. And he's like, I guess that's possible. He played like an expert. He was expert witness in his mind. He was the uh, expert on the occult and on alternative religions. And he thought that the police didn't have any um, idea or any thought or any suspicion that he had committed this crime he just thought that they were asking him because you know he could might help them out on alternative religions he just didn't know that they were setting him up to be the fall guy and i didn't either you know how do you go there i mean how do you make that leap that that's the reason why they're at your door right you're arrested on june the 3rd and if we can touch on your interrogation experience for a moment I think it's important to share with potential jurors and listeners, you know, the experience within the interrogation room, particularly for a 16-year-old and, and how you were treated. Can you describe the type of room? In hindsight, do you think the read oh, yeah. technique was used? Did you have a parent present? I definitely didn't have a parent present. Uh, the read technique was definitely used. And I was in a multitude of different rooms and jails. I've they bounced me back and forth between the West Memphis jail and the Marion jail at least twice that night. Took me to the Crittenden County Memorial Hospital and drew blood and hair and saliva samples from me, which that in turn is what gave me hope. Mm. Because when they were questioning me, they were like, oh, we know you did this crime. We know you did this. And they just kept saying, we know you did this. And I'm like, no, I did not do this. This is where I was at. This is what I was doing. This is who I saw. And they were like, oh, well, those are just your friends, your school teachers and your family. They would lie for you. And so I'm like, well, who did I see that wasn't a school teacher, a family friend or family member, you know? And I remembered um, after I'd mowed my uncle's lawn, me and my friend Ken were at Walmart and we're playing video games. And there was a kid came up like right next to me. and was like, you know, I got dibs on the next game and put his quarter down. And I did like a double take because for a split second at the corner of my eye, he looked just like my old best friend from Memphis that I hadn't seen since we moved from Memphis to Marion, Vincent. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> but it wasn't Vincent. And, but there was another kid that I didn't get his name. I didn't know who he was, but he was of Asian descent. And there weren't anyone that I knew of of Asian descent and Marion in the schools I went to, you know, and, and that I knew of. And so Vincent, you know, his, his father was 
American, a, a white, a white guy and his mother, you know, was Vietnamese and they met in Vietnam when his father was serving in the Vietnam war over there. And so, and so anyway, at Walmart, I thought I saw him, but just mm. at the corner of my, but it wasn't him. And so I tell them, I'm like, there was this kid, an Asian kid at Walmart who I saw who wanted dibs on the game next. You know, I don't know his name or who he was, but he wasn't my friend, wasn't a family member and wasn't one of my school teachers. So that's someone who doesn't know me, who can verify that I was where I tell you I was at, where I, you know, where I told everyone I was at. But they kept trying to use a read method. Um, at one point, um, they stripped me totally naked put me in this hallway with like uh, cell bars on the sides and let everybody in the jail out to march past the cells while I'm just standing there naked, trying to cover myself. And they're telling me, I guess they were told that what I was arrested for. And they were just telling me the most horrible things they were going to do to me as soon as they got the chance and all that stuff. And so then after being subjected to that for a while, the police come back, they're like, oh, you're going to have it tough, but we can save you from all of that. We already know what happened. We just need you to tell us what happened and save yourself. We'll work with you. I'm like, I literally did not commit this crime. You know, I am innocent. And so from watching TV, you can expect, you know, media, you can expect fingerprints. You can expect a mug shot and you can expect a phone call, right? If you're arrested. So when they took my fingerprints, they took my whole handprints. They took my whole footprints, right? And I'm like, they don't do this on TV. It's either this is top secret and they always do this, or what's most likely is whoever committed this crime left a footprint or a handprint, right, at the crime scene. And so I'm like, okay, I've dealt with adults who are, who are illogical, who who refuse to listen to reason, who will not accept your word, no matter what it is, you know? So I'm like, okay, obviously they're doing, they're, they have some type of evidence. Whoever committed this crime has left something of themselves at the crime scene. So whenever the police compare my handprints, my footprints, my blood, my saliva, my hair to whatever it is the killer found, then they'll realize that I've been telling them the truth the whole time. Then they'll let me go home. And so that's what I pin all my hopes on. You know, I'm like, no matter how ugly they get, no matter how they mistreat me, I'm going to carry myself with grace and respect always. And eventually they're going to solve this crime and they're going to let me go home. And so that's what sustained me throughout the county jail time. And then I get to the trial and it now becomes. The prosecution, I, I can't tell you how many times he said it, but he said it so many times that there was absolutely no evidence, that there was no physical evidence, that this was a crime, that, that, that the evidence, that there was no evidence was evidence of Satanism. And all and how clean the crime scene was, was evidence of Satanism. And to support Satanism, they brought in my rock t-shirts, they brought in Damien's girlfriend's mother's bloister cult record. Oh, wow. And they brought all this, these things in to prejudice the jury against us to where they would just look at us and say, oh, yeah, well, just look at them. They must have done it to where they would be comfortable with convicting us without evidence, with the only evidence being 
you know, ad hominem attacks about us personally. That's outrageous, right? It's just, it's simply outrageous. Were you read your Miranda rights? Did you understand them? Oh, yes, yes. And, and I was given a thing to sign. And, and as an innocent, I was willing to talk to them, right? Yeah. But what I was not willing to do was sign away my rights to an attorney. And I didn't, I re, on the Miranda form, on that section, I did not sign over. I did not give up my rights. I say, I will talk to you and tell you the truth, no matter, you know, as long as it takes. But I'm not going to give up an attorney. You know, why would I do that? You know, it doesn't make sense. And why would you advocate for me to do that? You know? Hmm. And so years later, I would learn that, um, well, after I was arrested, I would, it would be a while before I learned, you know, that, that, that it was Jesse Miskelly that they had arrested. Yeah. And that it was him that they had uh, forced into a false confession. Yeah. But I learned years later that on May the 10th, Jesse and an unknown friend from the trailer park that he lived in, Highland Trailer Park, were walking down the train tracks. And, and this is May the 10th. So this is several days after the boys came up missing, mm -hmm. several days after their bodies were found, and several days after the reward money has been posted on the news for any information that leads to the capture of the killer, you know, you'll get reward money. And so there's Jesse and an unknown friend walking down the railroad tracks and a man comes out of the woods and entices them, these two kids now, and entices two kids to come into the woods with him to drink some wine. Well, Jesse and his friend didn't go into the woods with that yeah. guy. They turned around and ran. And the first thing they did was call the cops and says, hey, I don't know if that guy's the killer or not, but he's awful suspicious. And he just tried to get me and my friend in the woods and drink some wine, right? So this was not a person calling the police who had personal knowledge of the murders. Yeah. Or he would have offered that for the reward money right mm -hmm. then. This was a person who hoped he had information that led to the killer so he would get that reward money because he was already spending it in his mind. Mm -hmm. He could already see the truck he was going to buy his father. And so that is proof, too of his innocence and our innocence and, you know, the leaps that the police would go to, to close a case. So when you're arrested and you're spending that horrendous time in the county jail that night, were you aware that you were there because of Jesse's false confession? No, they kept the police in their read technique. They're, they're saying, your friend has already told us you committed the crime. You might as well admit to it and save yourself. I'm like, who is this friend you're talking about? Yeah. They're like, you know, why don't you tell us? And so, honestly, I just thought that they were making up someone completely. And any name that I guessed, like just play their guessing game, that would be another person that they would bring in and do the same thing to. Yeah. Was you the know? severity of the situation apparent to you? Oh, once I was arrested, yeah. Um, this was the last day of school for the 10th grade. Um, what I was looking forward to was a weekend of summer, <laughs> not a whole summer, but a weekend of summer because I had, I was going to start my first job sacking groceries at Kroger come Monday. So this was Thursday, my last day of school. So I was going to enjoy the weekend for, you know, for my summertime. Yeah. I had a girlfriend that I met at the skating rink. My next door neighbor, Miss Littleton, who 
I'd been helping ever since we moved out there. Like every time she went grocery shopping, I went grocery shopping. I went with her to Kroger, you know, and everything. And that's how I got the job. She spoke up to the manager for me. She's like, hey, this is Jason. He's been going here with me for years. You met him every time, you know, because she had an issue with they had lost a check of hers years earlier. And so every time she came and wrote a check, they had to uh, call the manager to come down out of the office and verify it was her. <laughs> and so there we'd be standing, waiting on the manager yeah. every week for yeah. years. So basically your life was just waiting for you. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so she, she was, yeah, she was going to match me dollar for dollar on new clothes and on a used new, new used car, a, a new car for me, but you know, a used car. Yeah. yeah. And so my girlfriend's like, oh, no, we don't, we won't have to like, depend on her mom taking her to my house or my mom taking me to her house, you know, yeah. when you're kids and stuff. But yeah, yeah. sure. And so, yeah, when they arrested my last, my last day of school and, and all that future was now no more. Yeah. And I'm telling them the truth, but they're not accepting the truth. And they're just like, we're just going to keep you. And you can tell it to the, to the jurors. They're like, oh, take 20 years or we're going to kill you. Oh, take 10 years or we're going to kill you. Oh, take five years or we're going to kill you. I'm like, I will take no years. Yeah. And I will not lie against anyone to save my life. I don't care what kind of story you make up. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like seeing adults behave like monsters to children is just horrendous. So your presumption of innocence was obliterated by Inspector Getchell, I think that's how you pronounce Correct. it. He holds a presser the day after your arrest and says on a scale of 1 to 10, the proof against this young boy is an 11, yet there's no evidence to link you to the crime scene, which conveniently he didn't share with the public. And the media coverage and prejudicial commentary removed any reasonable doubt. How did you cope? For me, honestly, I, I didn't hardly think of myself at all. Um, most of the time I spent worried for my mom and brothers. I mentioned my youngest brother, Terry, was nine at the time. My other brother, Matt, was 14. And my mom, she, you know, we left Tennessee uh, on the last day of school for the fifth grade. I get get off the school bus, get out, you know, coming home I'm thinking oh we got all summer to play with my friends and but lo and behold there's a moving truck out in front of our house my grandparents are there and while my stepdad is at work we're moving to Arkansas because my stepfather is an abusive alcoholic drunk but um even though we can move back to we moved to Marion and my grandmother gave us a rent trailer to stay in he soon let the house go and of course him and my mother my mom were in love, you know, even though he was still an abusive, you know, alcoholic, he couldn't control that. And so she let him come back. And so they would fight and he would leave and fight and he would leave and stuff. And so he lost his job. And my mom, when they were separated, she worked hard, got a typewriter and uh, taught herself to type and got her GED and got her a job at a uh, trucking agency in Memphis, CTI trucking agency. And she was dispatched. And when I was arrested, her employer told her, "Is like, hey, I understand you're going. You want to be there for your son, and you're going to want to go to all these hearings and to his trial. And I can't stop you, but you will not have a job to return to if you take any if you leave." And so she lost her job. Um, the church, instead of like 
gathering up groceries to come over and help her and my little brothers instead set crosses on fire in the yard and condemned them, condemned the family for witchcraft. And so just a, a couple of years prior being well, a little over a year, not even two years uh, prior to that, getting locked up, uh, my, my biological father came back. And my brother Matt and I, we got to go spend a Christmas vacation with him and his side of the family. And we got to meet his mom, my grandmother, got to meet his dad, my grandfather on that side of the family, met his brothers and sisters, which were uncles and aunts from that side of the family, met a whole mess of cousins you know, from that side of the family. And so he was like, hey, you've lived with your mom, you know, up until you're a young teenager now. And what would you think coming and moving in with me out here and going to school out here and stuff? And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. But when I told my mom, she had a nervous breakdown, excuse me and my brother of not loving her anymore. And she tried to commit suicide and stuff like that. And so I remembered how she was when she had her nervous breakdown and how devastating that was for her. And all I did was ask to go live with my dad for a while. It wasn't like, oh, I don't love you and I want to go live with my dad. It's like, oh, here's this whole other side of my family that I don't know that I want to get to know, you know, and I, I have this opportunity. And so remembering how she dealt through that stress. And so here I was, you know, being taken from her by the police and railroaded for a, this most horrendous crime. And people were horrible and mean to her. So that's a lot of stress. And so I worried about how she was going to handle that stress. Would she do something harmful to herself or would she just lose touch with reality to such a degree to where she became dangerous to my brothers and to herself? And, and what if the state saw that and came and took Matt and Terry from her? and even compounded her grief even further. And so when you ask how I cope, I literally did not think of myself. I was thinking of my mom and my brothers. I'm like, I've got to not let any of this stuff knock me down because if it knocks me down, they'll see it knock me down and then it'll, it'll have a bad effect on them. And so my, my point of view, my frame of reference was I'm gonna carry myself with all the grace I can muster, I can't control any of these people and how they act and how they react, but I can be myself and I can carry myself with strength and dignity and be an example to my little brothers that, hey, no matter what this world throws at you, you control the way you react to it. But uh, some lessons, you know, are not learned easily. That's so brave, Jason, for a 16-year-old to think like that. Well, life, life puts you in adult situations. You have to, yeah, you know. And so my brothers, they, when they grew up into their teenage years, they rebelled even further. They like totally rebelled. My mom would try to tell them get right and do right. And they'd be like, oh, you can't tell us what to do. J Jason did right. And look where it got him. So yeah. F everything. Mm. So at this time, you've been surrounded by what I could only describe as hateful chaos for months by the time the trial gets underway. You're forced to sit there listening to lies, jailhouse informants, really, really questionable 
expert, and I say that loosely, testimony, and you're separated from the people you love, can you recall what you were thinking and feeling as they read the guilty verdict? Again, I was thinking about my mom and my brothers because I was like, okay, they are okay. Uh, my mom has lost her job. It was That was the coldest winter in Northeast Arkansas history at that time. It got so cold that the trees were exploding because they were freezing. But I'm like, they're, my brothers are alive. Uh, we own our trailer. Like when I have my name cleared, then everything can go back to normal. You know, my mom will get her job back. Me and my brothers go back to school. But when they found me guilty, I didn't know how to turn that ship around, you know, how, how to get it going back around. The only thing I could do, you know, is just say, hey, don't give up, you know, even though I did, had no idea of what not giving up would look like because I, I didn't know anything about the law. My family didn't know anything about the law. We didn't have attorneys at that point. Court appointed attorney, Mr. Paul Ford, was only obligated to do the direct appeal. And that was it. I kind of, when he said, hey, we'll get it on appeal, I didn't really have been faith in him because I begged him during the entire trial to be able to testify, for my witnesses to be able to testify. And he never said no, he just put me off, right? Until the trial was over with. And it was like, oh, well, we'll get it back on appeal. I'm like, you should have listened to me during the trial. Yeah, for sure. You know, which years later, when I had my post-conviction attorney, Mr. Phillips born, I only had to tell him once that I wanted to testify and he made it happen. I didn't have to beg him every day and then him just blow me off, you know, and just act like what I wished was, you know, of no concern to him. Oh, that's pretty ineffective counsel, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I, I remember uh, Michael Carson, you know, um, I'm sitting in court and he's coming through the door and Paul pulls me over to the side and says, now, this guy's about to testify that you told him that you committed these crimes. Remember what Judge Burnett said. You cannot show any emotion or any outburst in this courtroom. No matter what this guy gets up there and says, no matter how much he lies, you have to sit there and take it. And you'll get your chance, you know, to take the stand and say, you know, that what he was saying was lies. But I never had a chance because Paul Ford just strung me along until the trial was over with. I couldn't show any emotion during the trial. Otherwise, Judge Burnett would literally remove me from the courtroom, have his bailiff remove me from his courtroom. And so then at the end of the trial, the prosecution is able to tell the lie. They look at him, you know, it doesn't even show any emotions. Exactly. Yeah. Knowing, knowing he knows the rule. He knows what the judge has told us, but he's not there to find the truth. He's there to convict, you know, to make the jurors believe that it's okay to convict us. Yeah. I'm astounded that jailhouse informant testimony does not automatically raise a red flag to a jury. Like I know some states have toughened regulations because obviously credibility is a huge issue. Do you think that this is yes. an area for reform? I mean, informants do deals with prosecutors for their testimony all the time. How do we get jurors to not see that as credible testimony? 
That, that's a big, that's a big task. And part of it, I think too, our jury was what they call death qualified, meaning since it was a capital case and the state was seeking a death penalty against all of us, the jurors had to be death penalty qualified, meaning they had to believe in the death penalty. Any juror that did not believe in the death penalty was not permitted to be a juror. And so what I've seen, there may be a study on this, if not, there should be. But what I've seen is people who believe in the death penalty are people who believe that the state gets it right, are people that believe that the police do not and cannot lie. And so when it comes to a point of fact and you have a lay person and you have a police officer saying the fact is one thing and it's a different thing, a death qualified juror is going to believe the police officer before anyone else. And to me, that that that's a prejudice because the people who don't believe in the death penalty, they're the ones who know that the police are just like anyone else. They can lie and you don't have you don't take their side every time you have to look at the facts of the matter. You can't just blindly believe them. And so I believe that, that that's a point of disparity. How do we how do we get across to the jurors that not only the police will lie to you, but they will set up for someone else to lie on you, a career criminal? Because the way they tell the career criminal is this, like, hey, we know this person committed this crime. We want to help you out. You need to help us help you out. And so that makes it easy for the career criminal to make up a story because they don't necessarily know one way or another if the person they're making up the story is against is innocent or guilty. But if the police is telling them that person that they're going to make up the story against is guilty and it's going to help them to do so, well, why not? Their morality is already at issue anyway if they're, you know, in and out of criminal acts. And those are usually the people who are turned into jailhouse informants, career criminals, people who can tell a believing story to get out of jail free and be able to continue their criminal activities. And Michael Carson is one of them. And what I found out through my own private detectives is that his he is an apple that did not fall far from the tree, that he is only following in his father's footsteps for his father is a career criminal with a get out of jail free card. All he has to do is make up something on somebody and all of his criminal acts go away. Wow. Unbelievable. It's like a generational thing. Yeah. So innocent people are running a gauntlet. We're attacked on our left by criminals and attacked on our right by the police. I mean, they say that's one of the biggest factors for a wrongful conviction is your innocence, you know, let alone an innocent juvenile. Now, Jason, did you enter the Arkansas adult prison system as a juvenile or were you placed in a juvenile facility? You weren't in a juvenile facility first. I was in a juvenile jail till my trial. Then I went to prison, which was everybody. You're an adult, you're a slave <laughs> at that point. Yeah, and but, how yeah. old were you at that point? 
I turned 16 on Easter Sunday, 1993. Yeah. I turned uh, as a free person. Um, yeah. I turned 17 in cell five, barracks five at the diagnostic unit at Pine Bluff in 94. So this was after the conviction. I was at the diagnostic unit where they tried to determine your classification status from your mental acuity mm. to your mental stability to your physical abilities and place you at a unit at a prison that is geared towards your capabilities. And so their favorite person to get is a young person who's never had a job because then they can make you into the perfect slave. Because even if you escape, you have no life skills to stay escaped. Yeah. I mean, the fear must have been unbearable. Uh, I mean, it, it was the fear of my mom doing something to herself mm. was so great that it felt like, like my back would literally go out. Like I would wake up, the stress would be so great. I couldn't even turn my head. It felt like in between my vertebrae were shattered shards of glass. You know, I was just so tense from the pressure of it all. Yeah. Were there specific coping mechanisms outside of focusing on your mum and your brothers but that you use for your mental health? So any thought processes or meditation, what kept you mentally strong? You know, what sustained you for 18 years and 78 days? Uh, kind of what kept me strong before then just just an attitude of get get the work done just get it done get the work done do the work and so when i was in there you know i'm like this is it's like a whole world it's a different world it's a whole different microcosm and so i started out working in the slave fields you know and so hard labor i was sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor and so many people do that differently. I'm like, I'm innocent. I don't belong here. But this is where I am. My first job was supposed to be sacking groceries at Kroger. But instead, I was a slave in the slave fields of Arkansas. And so I did my very best every day. I, uh, I worked hard, the, you know, above and beyond what was called for under the terms of hard labor I was sentenced to, no matter how disrespectful people were towards me. I always treated everyone with dignity and respect. And so when it came time for me to leave the slave fields, you know, and, and, and get a different job, you know, I, I went to work in the kitchen. And I did my best in there. And then I put in to get my GED, you know, and they're like, oh, you have life without parole. You don't need an education. And so I filed the only grievance I filed while I was incarcerated was to get my education because I needed to provide, you know, a, a, a role model for my little brothers, for Matt and Terry, because they were free and, and they faced a lot of like they got into fights at school and the principal was like, oh, you're you're the Satanist brother. Well, you're expelled. Mm. And so it was hard to motivate them with, without leading by example. And so I, I would get my, you know, filed that grievance 30 days later I was in school had my GED 30 days after that 
And so after that, while I was in school, I got to be friends with the school clerks, Michael Orndorff and Joseph Wynn. And uh, Michael Orndorff used to be on death row. And he told me what that was like so I could have an idea of what Damien was going through and his ordeal. Damien's sister and I, Michelle, wrote for a little while until Warden Tony was like, oh, y'all can't do that anymore. You got to stop. But my whole thing was just to work hard and do my best no matter what, you know, whether I'm getting out tomorrow, today or the next day. And so I just applied myself. And so my, my whole thing was compassion, treat people with compassion. And so I would end up winning the respect of, you know, my fellow slaves, the innocent ones and the guilty ones. Uh, I won the respect of the officers and the staff. And I was able to do good works in the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce. When I first got to prison, you know, everybody was trying to kill one another. They were especially trying to kill me. So many broken bones and teeth knocked out and stuff. All the windows were busted out in the prison. The building major even had a black eye. Like everybody was just about violence. That's how everyone defined themselves was about how much violence they could inflict upon each other. And so I worked hard in the JCs. And eventually what would come to happen instead of people looking to do harm to one another, people were having conversations about what they can do to make their environment healthier. And so we, we instituted many programs, part of my um, Erasing the Line to Divides program. And every holiday, our, our main fundraiser or was uh, the concession stand out on visitation. And so we would make uh, food, you know, for your visitors, have photos and stuff, photo sales and stuff. So the money from that, we put back in the community. Every holiday, we would have like checker tournaments, chess tournaments, Domino tournaments, basketball, softball, three-legged races, handball, any type of tournament you can think of. And we would put real money onto your account for first and second place winners in every category. Mm-hmm. And we did this every holiday. Um, we rented movies as a theater would and paying those prices because we pay because we play the movies to an audience, right? So instead of paying a $3 rental at Blockbuster, we would have to rent them like 5,000 bucks to play one movie, you know, as a, under a licensing fee. And so we would play movies on the weekends, um, cleanest barracks and each housing unit got freshly popped popcorn because we bought a popcorn machine for the concession stand. So people would have fresh popcorn, Brilliant. give out sodas. Um, and also we had, which was the coolest thing, uh, twice a year, we gave out scholarships to two, people and a a slave's family member and a guard's family member right and so we would have a banquet for jc's membership at the end of the year and with all the staff and all of our families and stuff invited and the recipients of the scholarship would give get up and give a speech and they would talk about what it was like growing up with their family member in prison whether their family member was enslaved there or working there. And so that reminded everyone there of our shared humanity and what it is we really have to work for. And so I I saw a great paradigm shift in everyone 
for a time in that prison when everyone had a shared goal. That's pretty incredible, Jason. Thank you. So uh, that was my whole way of coping was to work hard Mm. and to carry myself with dignity and grace and an effort to show people that you can live like that, no matter how tough, no matter how rough, no matter how disrespectful the world is around you, you still have the power of choice to choose how to carry yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it seems like it was an innate reaction for you to carry yourself in that way. Is that something that you learned from your mom? It's something I learned in dealing with my mom. Um, she's, she's got mental illness, like Damien has mental illness. You know, it, it, it's manageable through medication and through counseling with someone who cares. And that, that's the key ingredient, the caring part. You have to have someone that cares yes. for you to counsel with. You know, and at the time growing up, I didn't understand all these things. You know, I'm just witnessing mm. my mom go through these things. And some, most days you can have a conversation with her, but sometimes you would have a conversation with her, but it was not her. It was someone illogical, right? And so I had to develop a lot of coping mechanisms at a young age, you know? Yeah. Um, Well, the first time I was taken away from my mom, and I really believe this was what uh, struck her fear of losing her kids, you know, forever. You know, this real fear of hers that became almost an obsessive paranoia for was on when I turned five. And uh, this was right after my mom left my biological father when I was four. And so it was just me, my mom, and my little brother, Matt. My birthday is April 11th. Matt's is April the 21st. And a lot of times we'll, ha- we'll share a birthday celebration. Mm. And uh, so it was my fifth birthday, my first birthday without my father. And so my Uncle Alan, my mom's brother, got me a toy M16, right? Machine gun, <laughs> right? Yeah. Of course, I didn't know that's what it was. It was just in a box and I opened it up. And it was like, wow, awesome thing. But to me, it was a noisemaker. And I remember holding it to my ear and pulling the trigger as fast as I could, making it go, making it go, make that, that sound, right? So my little brother, he's still two. I just turned five. He won't be three for another week. He grabs the uh, toy gun by the barrel and starts pulling it, right? Because he wants, you know, he's just a baby. He wants to play with it too. Yeah. But I just got it. It's my birthday. And so I held on to it. Right. I wouldn't let it go. And my mom was like, Jason, share. We share. Jason, we share. And so I let it go. Mm. But Matt was still pulling on it with all of his strength. And so when I let it go, he pulled it right into his eye and it went boop. And he started screaming immediately. I mean, I got in trouble, even though I didn't hit him it was accident yeah but he had a black eye and one of the neighbors said called the dhs the department of human services on my mom and said oh this lady over here is beating her kids there's a baby with a black eye and so they came and take took me and matt away wow 
Um, I'm not sure exactly how long it was. Time mm -hmm. is different when you're that young. Yeah. And where they took us wasn't that bad. Uh, it was some old folks home. It's where I first saw Star Trek and fell in love with Star Trek. Um, so <laughs> there is that. Um, but I remember at some point we were able to come home for the weekends. And I remember the first weekend um, I ran away. Um, I told Matt to, uh, I was like, let's play hide and go seek. And uh, you hide, I'm a count. And so while uh, he hid, instead of me counting, I ran away to grandma's because grandma just lived down the street. I'm like, grandma will stop this madness. Yeah. <laughs> she will make these people not take us away. We'll go stay with grandma on the weekends. Yeah. Of course, you know, as a kid, I didn't understand the situation. Yeah. And so when I went to grandma's, guess who come to grandma's looking? My mom, Matt, and the Miss Smith, I think her name was, the DHS lady. But yeah, so that was five. And so I had to deal with a lot of grown up issues at a young age. And yeah, I've listened to your story quite a few times. And every time I listen, there's something I haven't heard before. And each time, though, there's such grace in the way that you conduct yourself and, and the way that you tell your story, even listening to you now, you know, that's so much on a five-year-old. And you've said that you were used to the police coming to your door. You know, that's, that's so much to carry, Jason, so much to carry. Yes. Yeah. It would, uh, it would be years later. Um, I would be talking to Jesse Lloyd, Miss Kelly Jr. I'm like, okay. I know how my name got in the hat. I know how Damien's name got in the hat. You know, my name got in the hat when 11 years old and playing hide and go seek. So I got a record. Uh, Damien ran away with his girlfriend, Deanna, you know, at the age of, I think it was 17 or 16. And uh, that's how his name got in the hat. That's how he got a record. I'm like, Jesse, how, how did your name get in the hat? How did you get a record? Or do you even have her? Did you have a record? You know? Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah. One day, he was about nine years old. He was walking home from school. But he had a rule. His dad told him, he's like, you come straight home. You don't dally. You come straight home. And every day, Jesse did exactly as his dad told him to. He would head straight home. But he wouldn't go on the street, he would cut across the soybean fields because there was these big soybean fields between the school and the trailer park where he lived. And so he would cut across there. Well, one day he went to cut across there and he seen all these big old flags just laid out. And so he stopped and looked at them. And as he was looking at them, he was like, well, who do these belong to? I don't see anybody. And he's looking around and he goes, well, I better stay and guard them. Somebody will come for them any minute. And so he's standing there, you know, and biding his time, thinking somebody will come and claim them any minute now. But he's looking at them and they look cool and stuff. But then he's like, oh, man, how long have I been here? I need to get home. My dad's going to be mad at me. I, I, I'm supposed to come straight home. So I need to go. But I can't leave these flags here. Someone will steal them. He's like, oh, I know what to do. I'll take them to my dad and he'll know exactly what to do. Uh -huh. And so he bent over and picked one up, put it over his shoulder, bent over, picked another one up, put it over his shoulder. And by the time he was reaching for the third one, he heard someone yelling out, hey, you, drop those flags right now. 
get your ass over here. Yeah. And stop stealing. And he's like, I wasn't, don't you try to tell me you weren't stealing. I caught you red handed. And that's how Jesse man got in the hat. That's how he got a record. That's how he got, according to David Burnett, the superpower of dealing with the police. Because from at the age of nine, from that point on, he had to answer to a parole officer. And I'm sure like they did me, anytime something happened in town, they probably came and asked him about it. Did you say he had to answer to a parole officer at nine years of age? Oh, yes. In America, 13th Amendment eradicated slavery in the form of slavery, another person owning another human. You can no longer be born into slavery. However, slavery is now the sole right of the state to own another person, only if that person has been convicted of a felony. And you may no longer be born into slavery, but the state does everything in this power to get you at the earliest age possible. Because wow. when they get you at that early age, then they can use those numbers to lobby for prisons and jails and things like that. In fact, they use those numbers to build a big super jail right outside the trailer park where I grew up. At. Wow. Just talking about Jesse. Did you struggle with Jesse's false confession during your incarceration? Like, what do you mean struggle with it? Like the idea that someone would confess and inculpate others, but to be incarcerated partly due to Jesse's false confession. Is that something that, yeah, you struggled with? Um, it wasn't something I struggled with. Um, it wasn't something that I blamed Jesse for either. Mm, yeah. It's definitely an indictment on the system, an indictment on the way justice is carried out in this country, you know, and, and in the world. In in the absence of being able to find the killer and in the absence of, of moral, you know, strength to say, hey, we haven't figured this case out yet, but we're going to figure it out. Instead of being strong enough to say that, instead, they just, you know, did what they do when, when they can't solve a case. Because in their minds, here's the way that the police and people in the judicial system who will advocate for someone to falsely confess. In their minds, you're guilty of something. If what they're arresting you for, you're innocent of, you're still guilty of something you were not arrested for. And if the person you're gonna pay for the crime for right now is still running free, it's okay that they got away because they'll get them for something else, even if it's for something they didn't do. That's the mentality we're up against. That's the paradigm that needs to be shifted because their mentality is they're not doing anything wrong because everyone is guilty of something. That takes the teachings of Jesus and turns it on its head, you know, when they're like, oh, he who is free of sin cast the first stone. Well, here they're like, well, no one is free of sin, so we can cast all the stones at everyone and it's going to be okay when that, that's not a way to run a judicial system. I recently spoke with James Trainum over a couple of episodes and he's so interesting and so insightful. And one of the things that struck me about police tactics is the idea of noble cause corruption and I think that plays into what you said 
if they believe somebody is guilty, then they'll work to secure that conviction. Exactly. Whether or not it's the right thing to do. That's how they justify uh, getting a person to bear false witness, because they tell you right off the top, we know this person is guilty. We just can't prove it, and they're going to get away with it. Help us pin it on them. And then you're in a situation, well, you need some help because, you know, you've done something to get into that situation to false witness or whatever. And so if someone's going to make your crimes go away and all you have to do is save the day and make up a story on someone who you think must have done it because the police is telling you they've done it. Well, then you're just empowered to lie. And that's how it happens. Yeah. Ultimately, you're released by taking the Alfred plea. Is justice ever served with an Alfred plea? No, it is not. And I've gotten a no Pam Hicks since then. And uh, well, really, I I really first really got to meet her was during my Rule 37 hearing. And of course, I was still enslaved then, but she was there. And she came right up to me and was like, hey, you know, I prayed that, you know, and this is when she's, you know, still wrestling with wondering if we did the crime or not. She's like, I pray that if it's God's will to release you, that you'll be released. And to me, that that was a big step for for her to take because you're you're talking about that 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 is a pain that is unlike anything in the world, you know, for a mother to lose her child. And so you don't want to delve into the details of that you don't want to know right you really don't want to know when you're going through that and so when the police tell you they've got the person you trust them and that's all you want to know is that they've got the person that they're going to make the person pay you don't want to know the details because it hurts too much and so to have her you know face that pain and and, and then to question it and then to get out you know and and work with her on the film Devil's Not, and to talk to her and hear how she was mistreated, you know, because she didn't grieve properly. Usually you see that, you know, as a state's tactic, you know, for the convicted. You're like, oh, well, look how they're not acting like a, an innocent person, you know, and so she was attacked because she wasn't grieving properly. And then she was attacked because she had the audacity to question the convictions. And so, you know, I don't know who committed the crime, but I know someone did it and the case needs to be reopened. And the guilty person pursued with with the evidence and no false confessions, no jailhouse liars, no underhanded tactics that subvert justice. Yeah. Yeah. I listened in recently on a wrongful conviction episode with Jason Flom. He was discussing your case with Joe Berlinger. And it struck me when he spoke of what he thought was the greatest influence on your case, that being the local community. So the support from a grassroots level and not necessarily the litany of high profile advocates that were supporting your cause. How did it feel to know after being vilified for so many years that you had these incredible advocates creating awareness, financing investigations and DNA testing. And it was from the same local community who had thought you Satanists and now they're chanting for your freedom. 
Uh, it was amazing, you know, and that's what I was, you know, hope for all along. My co-founder of Proclaim Justice, John Harden, he was one of those guys. He lived literally right down the road from my real dad. And he's like, you know, had I gone to live with my real father, you know, and, and my mom hadn't tried to commit suicide, we'd have known each other then, you know, we'd yeah. have been best friends and neither one of us would be in this work. But when, when people, and you talked about the uh, celebrities, you know, and when, when people from Los Angeles and California and New Zealand were saying, hey, Arkansas officials, look at this case. These kids are innocent. Arkansas officials were telling Arkansans, don't listen to those people. They're from New York. They're from LA. They're from New Zealand. All of them are foreigners. Trust us. We got the right person. Well, John was from Arkansas and he's like, hold up. I'm here. I'm from Arkansas. I'm not a foreigner as you want to call your fellow Americans and fellow humans. I'm not a foreigner. And this case is foul. And Something needs to be done about it. And so he started with uh, several other people from Arkansas, uh, Arkansas Take Action, to combat that lie of the foreigner bringing in the truth. Like, no, we can see the truth right here. And so you don't need to raise the specter of the fear of foreigners to yes. cloud the truth, yeah. you know? I mean, there were some pretty incredible advocates out there that were high profile. Like I have to say, I oh, <laughs> one of my heroines is Patty Smith. Oh yes, yes. I haven't been able to thank her. Yeah. People have the power. That version, like, I I just love it. I absolutely love it. It was so it's so powerful, you know. Yeah, and and, and it and, and and so that that's another thing, you know. So many people, so many powerful, amazing people came together to free the West Memphis Three. And so all the innocent people in prison, in Arkansas prison, were looking at our case to open the door, to be the precedent setter, to say, hey, you know, Arkansas does convict innocent people, you know, and we have these post-conviction rules on the books to let those people free. That's why they're there, because no system is perfect, even though Arkansas claims that it's infallible. Hence, uh, Pearl Jam's song, Infallible. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's very humbling to see, like, some of my favorite artists and stuff now, how, how my cases influence their art, you know, and, and to read, you know, in their lyrics, things that they are inspired by, by coming into contact with my life. And so the anguish that they felt of not being able to free me immediately, you know, came forth in their art. And in a sense, educated, empowered, you know, the people of the world to wake up and say, you know, hey, this is something terribly is wrong here. Can we talk about your role as co-founder and VP of Proclaim Justice for a moment? Yes. How did Proclaim Justice come to be and, and what set you on, on the journey? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, many, you know, I've worked in the law library for many years, um, in prison, you know, just to get an understanding of what I was going through and, and, and in there and as a law clerk, you know, people come to you and, and, and share their stories and what they've gone through and, and, and you hear innocence cases and stuff. And so those have always weighed with me. And so I get out and uh, meet John Harden and he tells me, he's like, Jason, the best things I've experienced in my life were getting married, 
seeing my son born and freeing the West Memphis Three. I want to continue saving innocent people. And I would love it if you would do that with me. And so John made the pitch to me. And I'm like, yes, you know, I promised everyone that I left behind that I wouldn't forget them. And this is a way for me to keep that promise in, a, in an active way and in, in, in a way that I could make it a reality. And so we started to work on it right then. And it took several years for us to get C3 status, to get our board of directors insured and everything. But a lot of the work I did, you know, for the JCs in a volunteer capacity in prison, you know, learning the Roberts Rules of Order has served me well in this organization because our board of directors is run by the Roberts Rules of Order. And so it's, you know, you make motions and you hope that you can convince your body politic that your motions are good ones and that they will vote in your favor, but it doesn't always go that way. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, the nature of an organization and the board. Yeah. I mean, it must be incredibly exhilarating when you succeed in exonerating someone like Daniel Villegas. Oh, my God. Daniel, yes. Um, I, I missed uh, Tim's trial. I wasn't able to attend that one, but I was able to attend Daniel's trial. And uh, that was an emotional time. And uh, it was an emotional several years, you know, leading up to the trial, you know, uh, doing fundraisers for him, uh, getting awareness out about his case, investigating. Like, we literally found who committed the murder, and the state won't pursue them, you know, and, and you know, see his family. And, and, and that was his third trial. And uh, I'm like, and it's not guaranteed, e even though I was confident that the case we presented was the better case and the facts were on our side. You can't always trust the jury to believe your facts versus the state's facts. They might, there might be that juror member in there that's gonna always believe the state no matter what when there's, you know, a contesting of facts. And so you don't know. They offered Daniel a uh, Alford plea as well. And here's how sick they were about offering it. How, how cruel they were in their depravity. He, uh, him and his uh, wife, Faith, got pregnant. And they were due July the 5th. And so, like, two weeks before she was due, they, they come up, you know, the Daniel were like, hey, we can uh, make sure you don't ever have to risk going back to prison for life without. So you can be here and be a father to your child because otherwise we're going to convict you again and your kid's going to grow up without a father and you know what happens to kids in this country who grow up without fathers and so me that was like a threat like not only will they put him away but eventually they will get his child and send his child away too and so john and i we, we flew and, you know, to El Paso and sat with him in faith, you know, all weekend and answered all of his questions, all of their questions, you know, about what life is like now for me after having accepted an Alfred plea, after having, you know, had to do that.
And it's a real struggle for me every single day. And I did not have this struggle before. Where in prison, I was more free in a sense than I am today because of the Alford plea. You know, taking the Alford plea hurt me, hurt my soul more than being found guilty in 1994 did. Oh, Jason, that's, that's horrendous. It's horrendous. I mean, you're coming up to 10 years of freedom this August, isn't it? Yes, sir. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel free? No, I, I mean, it's a strange thing to say, you know, but uh, this Alfred plea, I feel it like unlike anything else, you know, because before I was forced to take the Alfred plea, I had a hope that we were all working towards the same goal, and that was solving the crime, right? I had a hope that eventually the state's actors would wake up and say, you know what, these kids are innocent. And it's my duty and my oath to free the innocent and to go after the guilty. So I had that hope. But when they forced me to take that Alfred plea, it was like something in me broke, like that hope was extinguished. And so it has been a lot of struggle and, and a lot of conflict that I can't necessarily put in to the correct words to convey exactly what I feel all the time. It never goes away. Just touching on Brendan Dassey, if you will, what were your thoughts when you watched Making a Murderer and saw the interrogations of Brendan? Did it give you an idea of the mechanisms that would have coerced Jesse into his false confession? Oh, yeah, 100%, you know, 100%. But, you know, it, is, it was different because, you know, Brennan knows Stephen Avery, whereas Jesse didn't really know me or know Damien, you know. I think there was a lot of jealousy issues with Jesse and me. And I found out things, you know, through my investigator about issues, you know, that certain things that had happened in my life and that they were a total mystery to me at the time, you know. But I did, I did see that going on with Brendan, you know, the, the police abusing him, you know, and like he said, you know, they get into his head, you know, they got into his head. I mean, he was obviously so ill-equipped to deal with the situation that he found himself in. You know, I've said this many times, it's such a visceral thing to watch, particularly because he's a kid and particularly because there's, there's that palpable vulnerability in that room. Right. Do you feel the interrogations of Brendan Dassey has in a way opened the door to the interrogation room on a much broader scale. What do you mean? It's garnered so much attention, like millions and millions and millions of people have been given a viewpoint into the interrogation room, into the type of tactics that are used commonly throughout the US, whether somebody is 15, whether somebody's 16, whether somebody's 30 this idea of education informing potential jurors. Do you feel that the interrogations of Brendan has helped to do that? In a way, um, but I think our target audience is still being missed because the people who are engaged, the people who are engaged in 
listening to podcasts like yours, people who are engaged and watch uh, documentaries like, you know, Making a Murderer, people who are engaged, you know, and watch Paradise Lost films, they already know that something is wrong with the system. They might not know all the details of how the system is messed up, but they, they've, they, usually those people are already open to that. But the people we need to reach are the ones who don't watch those videos, who don't watch documentaries, who don't listen to true crime podcasts. And so how do we reach those people? And the only way we can do that is to teach these things in school mandatory instead of it being you know of your own of your own free will and, and things you know but in in america like like frederick Douglass once observed you know you know the greatest ally to slavery is ignorance you know, you know the greatest threat to slavery is education and so slavery is a big 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 money maker in america and most people don't even know that slavery is legal because it's designed to be that way. They don't want people to be informed. And so even now, you, there's a pushback on learning critical race theory you know, in, in America and probably the world. Don't teach that because if you know about it, you can protect yourself against it. But if you keep people ignorant, people can't protect themselves. And so there are forces at work in this country and world who want to see us enslaved because it's money in their pocket. They can't imagine a better way, a more humane way of making money than on the backs of abusing poor and colored people. And so we need to find some type of way to bring education about the judicial system into our schools and not, and I'm not talking about pro cop programs like dare and, and scared straight programs. I'm talking about real education, like, like you're discussing. You yeah, know? absolutely. I think it's one of the, it's one of the weapons of war, isn't it? That they take out the educators. When you think back on Paradise Lost, West of Memphis, throw Making a Murderer in there, and of course there are many others, do you think that these documentaries literally save lives? Oh, yes, definitely, because, you know, the whole goal with the state in, in the case of the West Memphis Three was, hey, we can't, we don't know who committed this crime. It could have been, you know, a drifter, and, and the people want the case solved. and so. You already got a list of people who are throwaways. And so there you go. Throw them away. But with with the documentaries, when, when the documentaries, you know, in, in the podcast, you know, illustrate a case or capture it on film and bring it back years later, well, then the case can't be thrown away. That person can't be thrown away or just be, you know, shoved up under a rug and forgotten like so many are. There are so many people that no one knows about that are suffering this because not everyone has a documentary crew filming their trial or interrogations or things like that. And so for those people who don't have people, that's who I agonize for, you know, to bring hope to the hopeless innocent. 
Brendan's now 15 plus years into a life sentence. What advice would you give him as someone who's been through a similar experience, so to speak, of the justice system? Oh, I have so much. And we need uh, hours to <laughs> talk to Brendan, <laughs> um, which I'll which I wonder, you know, what, what his life is like in there. I, I, I've seen people do time in all different types of ways, some of it healthy and some of it not. And I wonder how healthy his life is in prison. You know, even though we all out here are working hard to see him free today, see him free yesterday because he did not deserve a single day in prison. But the reality is that is where he is. So what is Brendan's life like? You know, does he have a job, you know, to where he can take some type of pride in and gain some type of skills that may help him when we do get him free? Uh, is Has he made friends with, you know, his fellow prisoners, you know, because you no matter what they tell you, you can't just go into prison and shut yourself off and not ever speak to anyone. That's unrealistic and unhealthy. So I wonder, you know, what, you know, if he's made friends in there and, and what the staff is like, you know, what his relationship with them are. Because my experience with, with the staff in prisons, you know, there were some horrible ones, but I made lasting friendships that, with people that I have to this day and have met with some of the people charged with keeping me secure and guarding me. I've met with them since I've been free and they're like, Oh, you know, this is what I prayed for, for you. So I wonder, you know, what, what his life is like. And I know that's not an answer to your question, you know, about what advice I would give him because really he didn't do anything wrong to be where he's at, you know? So, you know, there's no preventative advice really, you know, I imagine, you know, if, if he gets questioned by the police about something he didn't do again, would he just be like, no, I need an attorney. I can't talk to you, even though I would love to tell you my truth. But experience has taught me that you might not necessarily be after the truth. So I'm going to have to get an attorney to speak with you and, and defend me from you. And so that's one lesson he's got to learn, you know, from that, that he can't trust the police, even when they say, hey, we're on your side and we just want to know the truth. We're trying to help you out. Yeah. They're not. No. They're just. Yeah. They're, exact they're, opposite. They're, they're targeting. Yeah. They're targeting you for conviction. And you think your innocence will protect you, but it doesn't. They will strip you of your innocence and, and make up a story for the rest of the world to believe about you, which he knows all this, you know. I mean, they turn you into an avatar, don't they? They strip you of your identity. and, and... That's the worst identity theft in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like creating a person that doesn't exist. Exactly. Or they'll take some details of your life and then weave a fantastical, believable story out of it. But I, I would love to talk to Brandon and just 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 talk to him, like really person to person, and just hear what his life is like on a day to day basis, and talk him through that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm sure that would be invaluable. If you could go back in time, 
what advice would you give your 16 year old self? Oh man. Uh, what advice would I give my 16 year old self? Well, what, there's nothing I could tell myself to protect me because now what I would do if I could go back in time, I would not even go see myself. I would go to the police department. I would go to the kids' families and be like, hey, a crime is going to occur. I don't know who's going to do it, but here's who it's going to happen to. Y'all are going to blame me for it, and y'all are going to blame Jesse and Damien for it, but we didn't do it. We're going to ultimately spend 20 years in prison for it, and y'all are going to try to kill us, but we didn't do it. So here's, you know, try to prevent it. Like, tell, tell those parents to keep their kids at home that day and keep them close, you know, and if I had a time machine, that's what I would do with it. I wouldn't go give myself advice because I, I, I would be powerless, the same powerless I was before with yes. that advice, mm. you know? That's astounding. It's, it's the people in power are the ones that need the advice. It's like people ask me like, hey, are you, how are you adjusting to being free? I'm like, adjusting to being free? There's no problem with me, you know? Yeah. The problem is society. There's a problem yes. with society. So how is it adjusting to me going away as an innocent and now being freed as an innocent? What is adjusting in society to change and prevent innocent people from suffering this fate? Because society has the power, not me, not the individual, not the victim. And what does it say that if if you could go back 16 years and, and give yourself advice that there is absolutely nothing that you can say to yourself or that you can do that will prevent the police from doing what they did. Exactly. I, I, I didn't have the power then. They are the ones that have the power. So they're the ones that need to be reached. Not just then, but now too. Yeah. Because we're still in the pursuit of justice in this case. And there's nothing in the world stopping them I'm doing an about face and upholding their oath to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. What advice would you offer other people who want to contribute to criminal justice reform and how they can best support those who are wrongfully convicted? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you, uh, those people are usually the ones that have their head on and, and know you know, the innocent people go to prison, so it's not anything I can really tell them to change the way they do things because they're, you know, doing things right. We, we've got to eradicate slavery because it creates a vacuum that sucks people into it, innocent people into it, that creates societal problems that leads people into crime, that creates, you know, more need for prison. And so I would start with changing the 13th Amendment, eradicating slavery for the whole world. Of course, you can't change it for the whole world, but America prides itself on being the leader of the free world. So we should start living up to that instead of being, you know, the inspiration for our Viet Mott Frey and other horrid things that we're the inspiration for. Another thing that would change the way we do things and, and, and lead us into a healthier community is to eradicate the ability 
and the protection for police to lie during the course of investigation. Our officers have to be held to the highest standards, not the lowest standards. They have to be, you know, have integrity always at the forefront of their heart and their actions because any investigation built on a foundation of lies cannot stand. And so if they're coming out the gate trying to lie, trick, and deceive, well, that's their whole mentality. And that's the type of mentality that also comes with other, you know, vices like violence and cruelty and, and all these other things that make, you know, society unhealthy. And so I would start with those two things. And with those two things, I believe that we would see a lot of positive change in our system, a lot of healthy change. We'd eliminate the vacuum of slavery that sucks so many people into it. And we'd get at the root of our police department, which is supposed to be integrity and a duty to serve instead of lies and an ability to enslave. I mean, we've recently seen two states, I think it is Illinois and Oregon, pass bills banning deception of juveniles while they're being interrogated. So it's a start. It's a start. Yeah. And we can only hope that that's contagious. <laughs> right. I, I speak on it all the time, every chance I get. What's next for you, Jason? Uh, we're hoping to free um, Daniel Risher and Nikki Zinger from Arkansas, enslavement Arkansas, sometime this year. If not this year, definitely early next year. COVID's thrown the whole world out of whack. We, we've also got a few people, some, some other people here in Texas we want to free as well. So I'm, I'm just working hard trying to free, free innocent people. That's really all I do. Well, I have two jobs. My other job, I build databases and manage databases for several different organizations like uh, National Association of Addiction Professionals uh, and, and things like that. It's incredible what you do, the, the advocacy of proclaimed justice and yourself and John and everyone involved. You should feel very proud of your work. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I think, uh, you know, I've kept you long enough. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. You're infinitely interesting and you're so eloquent in the way you tell your story. I know people are going to take a lot from it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, thank you for caring and uh, thank you for doing the good work, the hard good work, you know, and then getting the word out there, you know, with, with the sixth hour. We'll have to get Brendan out so he can see the beach and, you know, live his dreams. trying to come home Mama, I'm calling 
from the inside I can't sleep for these bad dreams Please say you still believe I'm not the madman that they show on the TV Mama, they made a bad man out of me Mama, I'm calling from the inside How's the garden in the car? Has he gotten very far? Mama, I'm calling from the inside Yes, I'm reading all I can And I'm longing for our land Just a sad man drowning in the sea Mama, they made a bad man out of me. from the inside and it's the perfect kind of day to throw another day away mama i'm calling from the inside yes i'm clean in every plane but i'd rather waste away at least a dead man can say that he's free Mama, they made a bad man out of me. Poor Poor people lose, poor people lose all the time. Poor, poor people lose, poor people lose all the time.